think we all know the pedigree of the Cornell Lab of Ornithology when it comes to bird resources, and we at the ABA are excited to partner with the Cornell Lab of O to offer an amazing deal exclusive to ABA members. ABA members can now get a 15% discount to any new subscription to Cornell's amazing new Birds of the World resource that is applicable for three years. Birds of the World is a powerful resource that brings deep scholarly content from four celebrated works of ornithology into a single platform where birders can answer all their life history questions for every species of bird they could want. It is extraordinary. You can get more information at birdsoftheworld.org. Hey everybody, this is just a warning that in the beginning of this episode, I discussed an incident of sexual assault. There aren't a lot of details or anything, but for those who might find that sort of thing distressing or inappropriate for younger listeners, you can skip forward about four minutes, 45 seconds, five minutes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Let's just jump right into it, shall we? The birding world was rocked last week by the allegations of Aisha White that Jason Ward sexually assaulted her. You probably know Jason Ward from his topic, Birds of North America web series, and frequently, of course, this podcast. Aisha White detailed her experience in a blog post early last week, and the response has been pretty swift. Many organizations, including the American Birding Association, have severed ties with Jason Ward in the days since. And while, on the whole, it has been a frustrating and sad thing, it has reinvigorated the ongoing discussion about women's safety in the field and entrenched sexism and inappropriate behavior, largely by men, in birding. And I'll talk about that in a minute, but first I want to tell you what we're doing here at the ABA as Jason Ward's work and profile were intertwined with a lot of stuff we do. Though we're certainly not alone in that, pretty much every bird and birding organization is dealing with a similar sort of fallout. So what we've done is we've removed all the podcast episodes that feature Jason Ward. There were about seven. There is currently a holding page there explaining why they are gone. It is my hope that we can recut them, and return the episodes to their spots in the near term. Uh, For some, it will not be too difficult. For others, a bit more of a challenge. But I want to get them back in some capacity down the road. There was also a big interview with Jason Ward in the January issue of Birding Magazine. We'll be removing that from the website and replacing it with a message explaining why we've done so. That has been, for the most part, our organizational interaction with him. I do want to be clear, uh, Jason Ward never worked for the ABA. He was not a staff member here. Um, But we are very much steadfast in our support of Black Birders Week and the Black AF NSTEM collective that he was involved in because those groups consist of a lot of really great people doing really exceptional work, and that movement is bigger and stronger than any one person. So just want to make absolutely clear that we we still will continue to have their back and support that movement. One of the things that was also so very sad about all this is the revelation that birding was used as a means, as an opportunity to assault and violate another person in the field. To that end, We have heard stories of bad behavior by birders in the wake of this. I think as we go forward, that is an important issue to talk about. During Black Birders Week, there was a theme of black birders feeling uncomfortable in some rural settings, especially when they are working or birding by themselves. It is a similar sort of thing that women have to think about as well. And to be clear, I don't think this is a birding-specific issue. 
is much bigger than our hobby, but it does sort of manifest in birding in some unique ways that deserve to be addressed. And that's sort of a medium-term goal for us and for this podcast. In the meantime, I would urge you to check out uh, Hannah Bushart's Women's Birders Happy Hour podcast for more coming from that perspective. It is a perspective that I, I cannot give you. I'm, I'm not going to pretend that I can, uh, but one that absolutely deserves to be heard. So this will probably be the last time we discuss this specific incident in this space, though obviously I can't see the future. We'll follow up on sort of the general stuff. Uh, it's important for us to take these sorts of accusations seriously because that's really the only way we can get through this, to build that community that is safe, that is accountable. Uh, some things are specific to the birding community. Some things are going to be bigger poles, culturally speaking. Uh, I am certainly guilty of frequently thinking that the birding community is better, you know, more just, more considerate, more fact-based, more open than the rest of the world. It is always disheartening to learn that it's not. Perhaps it is more important that we accept this, we keep that idealized version of our community in our minds as we move forward, but certainly don't let it impede you from seeing what you need to see and taking action where action needs to be taken. So it is this month in birding. It is a fun panel. I, we don't discuss the obvious thing because I wanted to do it here up at the top and also because one of our panelists, Jordan Rutter, works for the American Bird Conservancy, which also employed Jason Ward until recently and legally couldn't say anything. She couldn't say anything. And I, I wanted to respect those professional obligations. But the panel of Jordan Rutter, Jenny Duberstein, and Brody Cast Talbot is a very good one. And the discussion of owl drama and the Patagonia picnic table effect is fantastic. We'll do the thing after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of February 2021. Probably best to just call this the Red Wing Report for now, as two more of the European thrushes turned up in Nova Scotia this week, which makes five in that province and one more in New Brunswick. I believe this is a grand total of 10 for the ABA area for the first part of 2021, which is a pretty remarkable eruption. But let's talk first records. I have one to report from Georgia, where a Hearman's goal was seen on Tybee Island. Some have speculated that this is the same bird that has been hanging out on North Florida beaches for several months. Undoubtedly, birders in South Carolina are on the lookout as it was seen not far at all as the goal flies from the state line. Those are the ABA area rarity highlights of the last week. It's a little bit of a short one this week. As always, for more complete look, you can check out the ABA's Rare Bird Alert every Friday morning on aba.org slash rba, or you can go to our Rare Bird Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash aba rare, or follow us on Twitter at aba bird alert. Hi, everybody. What a month. It is the last Thursday in February, and that means it is time for This Month in Birding, and I'm pleased to welcome some birding friends to talk about the birding news of the month, and I feel like this month's maybe more than most. <laughs> we, we sort of need each other, so I am grateful uh, to all of you for your time today. The panel today, I will start off with, um, with my friend and ABA colleague and, and conservation champion of the Sonoran Joint Venture coming from Tucson, Arizona, Jenny Duberstein. Jenny, how are you? Hello, I'm great. It's lovely to be here. Next up, the only person I would trust to interview me on my own podcast uh, this month in birding stalwart, Jordan Rudder. Hello, Jordan. <laughs> Hi, Nate. It's great to be here. And new to the panel, uh, but not to the show. Uh, we spoke last year when when COVID was exciting and new, and and now, well, you know, from uh, Portland, Oregon, Brody Cast Talbot. Hello, Brody. It's an honor to be here with all three of you. Thanks for having me, Nate. 
So let's start with something light. Uh, owl politics. The, the snowy owl in Central Park that I talked about in an earlier episode is still there, sort of shockingly, causing equal parts joy and drama. And even the New York Times has gotten involved with a piece about the, the line that we sort of have to walk between promoting birds and sharing the information and sort of overwhelming the birds themselves. A lot was made about the Manhattan Bird Alert Twitter account, which has been essentially the source for up-to-the-moment information about the owl's whereabouts for a while. Um, what did you all think about this? What do you all think about the differing priorities, I suppose, between promoting birding, promoting this potential spark bird, and sort of where it is and the struggles we have to deal with because of its location? Well, I think that from an Oregon perspective, I think that most Oregon listeners would probably turn off the podcast at this point because it's <laughs> a topic we've been discussing at great length. Uh, yeah. Over the last month, there's been three different kind of well-known stakeout owls. There's a sawed owl. There's a whole group of of long-eared owls right off of a boardwalk at a national wildlife refuge. There's a screech owl that has this little cavity it roosts in, and so there's been lots of kind of uh, I don't want to say vitriol, but a lot of uh, spirited discussion about <laughs> the ethics of of sharing where these uh, birds are, especially when the National Wildlife Refuge shared that uh, that it said excitedly, there's all these long-eared owls like roosting right off the boardwalk. It's so cool. Right. And then birders got really upset. And it was an interesting uh, debate because on one hand, I thought, you know, honestly, it's not the general public, I think, in this case that we really need to worry about. It's the photographers that really want mm-hmm. the, you know, owl looking at them for the photograph. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's a fine line. But I think a friend did point out to me that you know because I also uh, moderate a WhatsApp group where we didn't have any firm rules about it. So it's been interesting to hear all of this debate around what the appropriate ethics are, where mm-hmm. and where we cannot share uh, this information. And I think most folks are coming down here, at least back on the side of you know share it with trusted individuals, but broadcasting to large groups of people it's impossible to know yeah. uh you know who, who those folks are but it's yeah it's been a uh many words have been spilled recently here it's interesting so for me i totally appreciate and recognize um the importance of ethics birding ethics when observing any bird and i don't know why owls are necessarily any different except for you know you don't see them you don't tend to see them as as frequently Mm -hmm. Um, as other birds. On the other hand, there is definitely kind of a gatekeeper-y sort of component of this that really rubs me the wrong way. You know, you can look at these birds if you're in this club or in this group, or if you're judged to be important enough to have access to this information, but otherwise you can't. And that that Or or even if you just like know the right people, right? right? Sometimes it's not even, you know, intentional. It's like, you're a new birder, you just don't know people you just don't and certainly in this pandemic time like it's hard to meet people and get to where you can get on those lists like we have we have a group me here in north carolina for rare birds and um you know we're very clear that it's open to anyone who wants to be in it but you still sort of have to know it exists to get in it yeah you know i can see someone who doesn't even know that exists finding out that this sort of quasi secretive thing is going on it could be very frustrating yeah, and a friend, a young friend who's a teen birder, who this would have you know uh, been a life bird for them, long-eared owls, 
wrote me if it was okay if he went because he'd seen so many messages of people sort of um yeah kind of gatekeeping those birds and i was like you know yeah like these they're off the boardwalk it's almost an ideal right. way to see these yeah. birds which is my understanding with the snowy owl uh, as well and um and yeah most of the the strong opinions about people not seeing the birds were from people who have seen them <laughs> yeah. already so there is definitely um but you know you also like you said you want to respect the birds and make sure their welfare comes first so it's a it's a it's a kind of a tightrope to walk absolutely being February Superb Owl Sunday mm-hmm. happened this month as well, and after that, um, it was really fascinating to see all of uh, all of these non-birder friends reach out to me and say, "How do I find owls? Where are owls?" Uh, there was a lot of interest, and I think right now I'm struggling with the "there's no one size fits all" answer for this sure. because if you can give a general park and say there's an owl there and have a treasure hunt to go find it. I think mm-hmm. that's better than like a GPS location, yeah. uh, especially if you're broadcasting it. Um, but there also is that balance of wanting to, you know, keep these people interested and be supportive and, you know, be welcoming and inclusive um, in that interest. And so it definitely is a balance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and part of it was, especially with the snowy owl in uh, New York, it's like, how do you keep a bird like that secret? Really? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's a big white, dot in the middle of a field it's it's kind of hard to to miss a lot of times so i think that we've been very fortunate certainly you know throwing it back to the sort of manhattan bird alert and sort of the drama surrounding that as well that 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 account sort of has a reputation of of being too loose with sharing bird information particularly with those kind of small secretive owls like sawets and, and long ears um but the snowy owl it's it's it is it's a totally unique situation compared to the others and so it's hard to take any sort of you know, overarching ideas from this situation that you can apply to something like perhaps the ones in Oregon that you're talking about, Brody. Yeah, with with, with these owls in Oregon, they're owls that you're not going to find if you don't know where right. they are. Uh, and whereas with that snowy owl, you know, yeah, it's uh, pretty hard to miss. Mm-hmm. I was reading something about this. I don't remember who said it, but they they suggested you know, sort of the idea of like, so maybe this snowy owl in Central Park is kind of an ambassador. And is it ideal that lots of people are going to look at it and potentially disturbing it? Maybe not. Maybe that maybe the owl is not disturbed. You know, it has wings. If it was really disturbed, maybe it would fly off. Um, but kind of uh, comparing it to animals in a zoo um, mm-hmm. that like would, a, given its choice, would a tiger or a lion rather be in a zoo, even if it's a beautiful zoo with ample room to roam versus you know being in the wild mm-hmm. um but it can serve sort of as an ambassador and get people engaged and excited about birds and birding and learn more about them and uh you know bring them into the into the fold so to speak um yeah. and build advocates for for birds and bird conservation well yeah, i hope so that would be a nice sort of coda to this whole thing Snow owls are amazing, and you know you always hear these sort of horror stories of, of people, especially even in the New York area, the owls that that frequent the uh, the Long Island beaches and, and people getting too close. And it's it's I don't know it's it's nice to hear that for the most part, I'm sure people who live there could possibly come up with some 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 bad apples, but in the Big Apple, but um, like for the most part, it's 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 been a nice thing. It's been a good it's been a good experience for a lot of people which is more than i can say for a lot of those sorts of things yeah i like to see birds in you know the news media that are positive experiences Mm -hmm. instead of you know exxon valdez stories (laughs) 
the owl piece is actually sort of a nice segue, like something yeah. unusual shows That's up true. and birders yeah, come to see it, right? Or or is it? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I understood the, the Patagonia picnic table story all that well. Uh, maybe I didn't, but yes, you're you're right on the surface. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I understand it either. So, okay, for our listeners who are not yeah. familiar with the, the Patagonia picnic table effect. So Patagonia, Arizona is this tiny little town. I did some research into this and <laughs> to make sure I'm telling the story correctly. Back in the 60s <laughs> or the 70s, some decade, 40, 50 plus years ago, um, somebody was driving through Patagonia. And back in the day, there used to be a lot more of this, I gather, these roadside picnic areas, just little, mm-hmm. you know, pull-offs and a cement picnic table um, off the side of the road where people traveling through could stop and have lunch and continue on their journey. And so there's this roadside rest in Patagonia that it's just right off the side of, of the, the highway and somebody was birding there and it's not clear to me what they saw. It might've been black cap gnatcatcher. It might've been roasted Bacard. It might've been a tropical kingbird. They saw something unusual, really unusual. They spread the word. Other birders showed up to bird this spot that hadn't been um, examined in detail before. And they, started to see more and more unusual things. I think a yellow grosbeak has been seen there. Thick-billed kingbirds are there pretty much every year lately. Um, You never know. Uh, Five-striped sparrow, lots of stuff. This idea of the Patagonia picnic table effect entered the birding lexicon, sort of the mythology of birding, with the idea being that when one birder sees something rare, more birders come and invest more effort in birding in that location than had happened before. And then more, they find more rare things. In a nutshell, that's, I guess, how I would explain what yeah. the Patagonian picnic table effect that's is. That's how I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, some, some researchers um, at Oregon State University just published a, a peer-reviewed paper in a, a scientific journal. Um, to test this hypothesis because it's something, it makes sense, you know, sort of logically like, yeah, if you see something rare and then a whole bunch of skilled birders show up, you'd expect that they might find more rare stuff. And so they decided to take a look at this. And they had this hypothesis, first of all, that rare bird discoveries would bring more birders in and that uh, over time, interest in birding in that spot would decrease, you know, as the rare bird moved on or as the site got, mm-hmm. I don't even know what the right phrase is, birded out. But they wanted to, to test this picnic table effect. So with increased birder effort, after that initial sighting, did birders spot more rarities in that same location? And so there's like a couple of, you know, important things. They were looking at things in the United States and they used eBird checklist submissions as their measure. Mm-hmm of birder effort and rarity reporting. And I think it went back to 2008. They went back, they they chose like a time, an inflection point after which eBird really started to take off. But they were looking at code four and code five species. So code four is what, I don't understand how casual is less common than rare, but it's kind of it the subtle distinction. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah. And, and one that jargon, exactly. jargon term it's, for it's, sure. It's, it's one of those things that doesn't really apply. It's weird because pink footed goose is a four in their annual and it's that it's a mess. But yeah, please continue. Sorry. So they, they were looking, they had to decide what are we going to define as rare? They decided code four and code five. So code four are, and I wrote this down, species that are not seen every year, but that have been seen six or more times, including three times within the past 30 years. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird. Or code five, which this is accidental species that are recorded five or fewer times in the ABA area or fewer than three records in the past 30 years. And if that sounds like jargon to you, you can go to the <laughs> ABA checklist page on ABA.org and read all about it. In some detail, yeah. One thing that was interesting to me, they acknowledged um, that this increased effort might turn up more of the rare, the code three rare species, like species mm-hmm. that occur regularly, but annually in low numbers. Um, but they said that the, it was beyond the scope of the research to include this. But I thought it was important and interesting that they did acknowledge, you know, that their yes. definition of rare was limited, right? Yeah, because that was one of my issues with the with the paper was that definition of rare. But yeah. 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 They, they had a baseline of how many rare birds tend to be seen in spots. And it was, if I'm interpreting the paper, I read it quickly. I skimmed the statistics, but it sounded like eight rare sightings per 1,000 checklists was uh, the baseline. And what they found, some of this stuff makes sense. So eBird checklists increase in quantity following a rare bird sighting. So somebody yeah. sees something rare, they report it to eBird, and a lot of people go birding there. Intuitive, yeah. And then over time, those checklist submissions decrease. Also sure. makes sense. You know, the longer mm-hmm. something's been seen, the more people have seen it, maybe the species moves on, people stop birding in that, that area. But the thing that was fascinating was that, and this is statistically speaking, According to their definition of rare, again, code four and code five, birders had the same chance of finding rarities during normal birding activities, those baseline birding activities as they do mm-hmm. when something rare has shown up. There was no difference between the eight rare sightings per 1,000 checklists baseline and the number of sightings per however many checklists after something rare shows up. So... Based on their definition of rare, the Patagonia picnic table effect, although it's a really cool story, uh, did not did not hold up to to scrutiny. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was great. Thank you for that, Jenny. Um, I I have two issues. One, the description of rare. My interpretation of the Patagonia picnic table effect means that, um, you know, you don't just find fours and fives. A lot of times, what is rare, quote unquote, rare. Uh, can be like seasonal rarities, state level, provincial rarities, uh, code threes, as they as they acknowledged. To be fair, um, and so because they didn't include those, it is I don't know, uh, maybe not totally complete. But also, like I like rare birds are rare. Like I totally buy that. <laughs> I don't know if this says that the Patagonia picnic table effect is is totally bunk though, because I think it's one of those things that you apply after the fact rather than as a predictive effort. I, I'm 100% in favor of people doing cool things with eBird data. So, like, I'm I'm with I'm here for that. Wait, I want to dig into something you just said though, because I'm not yeah, sure I understood it. it. You said something about it being applied after the yeah, but but that's it's, what they did, right? Like, they looked they, at old eBird data to to, well, it, to me the Patagonia picnic table effect is not something you can say it's going to happen at every rare bird because it doesn't happen at every rare bird. It just happens at some rare birds. And when it does happen, when more than one shows up, then you say, oh, it's the Patagonia picnic table effect. I don't know if it's ever intended to be like a way to predict how many rarities you are going to see. Like the idea that these phenomena are going to lead to more rarities um, is not really the point. It's more of like an after the fact, 
it did lead to more rarities. Is that am I making sense here? Maybe I'm not making any sense. You're here. kind of making sense here, but I think that's what, probably what I thought. Yeah, what the of. researchers <laughs> would say is that it's statistically not leading to more rarities. That may be. That may be. <laughs> like I'm, I guess I'm okay with that because yeah. rarities are rare. That's right. that's why they why they are. Um, yeah, but but Brody, I know that you are from Oregon. You probably you might probably know these people. What what is your take? Yeah, on this? I've gone birding with with a few of them. Uh, yeah, and I actually was last year was at the Willamette Valley Bird Symposium when they presented on their results mm-hmm. initially. So you can imagine this uh, hallowed audience of bird dorks and the uh, how it scandalized the room <laughs> when they announced their results. There was much harumphing yeah, uh, throughout the hall, and then uh, a year later, when this paper comes out, as it turns out, we have. Uh, pretty, I think around the same week, about 100 miles down the road from Corvallis, which is where OSU is, in Salem, a birder finds a male painted bunting. Birders, you know, in Oregon, that's a really good bird, and not very many records. And it's a male, of course, so lots of birders go to look for it. And a friend of mine, Rachel, while we're there in this suburban uh, neighborhood, finds a red-naped sapsucker, which is was also a or at least a first documented county record for mm-hmm. that county. And so here, it, you know, just down the road, is this like great example of the Patagonia picnic table effect with this pretty rare bird that definitely would not have been found if not for the first rare right. bird. Uh, but it's also a great example of kind of the, the limited scope of the paper mm-hmm. because this is a regional rarity. Yeah. We have red nape sapsuckers breeding on the other side of the mountains, so it's not even a state rarity. Uh, but I think that just gets to the challenge that they had. And so my my qualified defense of the paper, because I think a lot of the critiques have been in line with what you're saying, that having the scope of code four and five is uh, ignoring a lot of the regional rarities that are still rarities. Um, but I think that that's kind of the data set that they had to work yes. with. I think it would have been so challenging yes. to try and do these local rarities. Um, and, you know, the, I guess my, the part that I uh, really think about is that, you know, these folks that the, the authors, they're well-respected uh, in the academic field, but also in the local birding scene. And I guess what I really liked about it is you kind of got to this too. I think that sometimes we feel like ornithology is up on this pedestal and all of the commoners are out, you know, <laughs> recreationally birding. And here we have these ornithologists that are like, here's this interesting theory that birding has given us. Let's try and create, uh, you know, evidence for mm-hmm. it. And they weren't able to with that data set, but I just like that they uh, brought that part of birding into the academic discussion. And I just want to throw down the challenge to Cornell, you know, maybe because <laughs> OSU is the other kind of powerhouse in ornithology. Maybe Cornell, they can tweak the numbers, do their own study, try and prove them wrong. I think that the authors would would uh, certainly not turn down more uh, more. Uh, you know, a, a deeper look at, at this topic. I thought it was pretty interesting to so, find. Oh, yeah. One yeah. of the one of the authors is now at Cornell, so that's that. That's, oh, yeah. that, right. that right. <laughs> is already camps. happening. Right. Um, no, I thought it was a really cool. I thought it was an interesting paper. And in doing um, some of the research for this, I was like googling Patagonia picnic table effect and seeing what mm-hmm. showed up. And one of the other contributors to the ABA podcast, an old blog post of Jody Anks from two thousand and. 12 i think oh yeah you, you shared up. that with us yeah. yeah um i don't know if if like notes if you publish notes along with the podcast but maybe you could include a link in. jody yeah. created this like 
really cool diagram of what the Patagonia picnic table effect looks like, you know, looking yeah. at a kind of a, a social science-y uh, model diagram for it um, back in 2012. <laughs> I think people who like charts will really dig it. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Jordan? Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I was going to chime in, especially after um, Brody was speaking about the like analysis part. And I feel like this would be a great thing to keep going with um, and get the dictionary out and really explain what does rare mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, working at American Bird Conservancy, when you say rare, I think of oh, yeah. birds with very small, small populations, populations. Yeah. you know, and so um, obviously I'm aware of ABA codes and and that sort of rarity aspect to it. But, you know, thinking about if someone sees a Florida grasshopper sparrow, that's rare no matter where you are, right? right? right. So thinking about um, just the definition, again, of rare meaning either vagrant, right? Like geographical aspect or rare meaning small population would be really interesting. And then again, the, you know, local or regional aspect to it too. Cause I'm thinking, you know, the tundra bean goose of Philly, Mm -hmm. uh, like that was huge. That was kind of hard to deny as, as in terms of uh, rarity, but then, uh, Maryland, where I live, had a its first uh, state record of a black-chinned hummingbird, and that was a huge deal mm-hmm. in the local community. But of course, that wouldn't have been recorded in the study. You know, it's cool. It's it's fun to talk about again, as Brody said, the the ornithology and birding overlapping. And if I could add one more, so I one of the things that I do in the summers as I lead these young birder camps and mm-hmm. for Camp Chiricahua in Southeast Arizona, we spend a couple of nights in Patagonia and one of the highlights of camp, and then I'm going to pass the mic back to Jordan because she experienced this as a young birder, you know, we go to the roadside rest and it's yeah. like a, a Mecca for birders. You know, right. the kids go there and the, the picnic table is still there. It's, it's cement. So it's decaying. It's not falling apart. It's still there, but like it's covered <laughs> in poison ivy awesome. and, the kids yeah. are like, take my picture in front of it. And I'm like, don't touch those plants, please. <laughs> yeah, when, when I went to Camp Chiricahua in 1994, I got my life rose through to Picard at, uh, at the Patagonia Roadside Rest Stop. Nice. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful. Uh, I wasn't able to go and dig through my parents, you know, physical photo albums and stuff uh, just because of social distancing. But I look forward to the day when I can find my picture <laughs> that I took at Camp Chiricahua on that picnic yeah, table. 50 years so, of birding history. Yeah. I, I mean, just that aspect of it alone, you know, whether something is statistically significant, <clears throat> excuse me, or not, um, that, that is pretty cool. And just the totally connections that, that, you know, that all of these birders who are connected because they have spent time at or dreamed about spending time at the Patagonia roadside rest is kind of neat. And I think it also just goes back even whatever ends up mathematically with the Patagonia effect, it, it's the spark, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's emphasizing the treasure hunt aspect of birding that, you know, they talked about location fatigue, but as someone who has gone out in their patch every day during COVID, every day is different that it's like winning the lottery almost because yeah. you just never know what you're going to find and what you're going to see. And that I think, you know, maybe I could start the Patagonia effect in my patch or something is kind of exciting That's and, you know, an aspect to keep going. Yeah. yeah. Totally. But there's a funny, there's a, the, the word rare is like a drug. I, I write the rare bird alert in Portland and folks will email me and they'll say, I have this boreal owl in my yard and then they'll give me a recording and it's a Western screech owl. And I'm like, that's really cool. You've got this Western screech owl. And, uh, and then, you know, folks are like disappointed that it wasn't the boreal owl. I'm like, well, 
you didn't, you know, you didn't have any owls in your yard before. <laughs> right, before now, now you've got one. one. <laughs> right, right. It, it's, uh, yeah, it is funny how the word rare is like so, um, or, uh, you know, folks, folks are just always hoping that what they see is rare. It, it is a, I love chasing rare birds to be honest, but it is funny how there's that, uh, almost disdain for, for the common birds, even though that's what got all of us into this in the first place. Yeah. One of the other really interesting take-homes from the paper was they were just talking about the, the, impact of eBird on influencing birder behavior, Mm, mm -hmm. um, which is really true. And it's something, maybe this is a topic for another podcast that we've played around with in in the area that I work um, with this game called Desert Avocaching, trying to use eBird to Mm -hmm. get birders to go birding in a particular spot. Um, And they were part of the the discussion of this paper talked about the the very real influence, sort of a statistically measurable influence of eBird sightings and the eBird rare bird alerts on influencing where birders go. Yeah, we look forward to the paper on the eBird effect, though that might be a much longer (laughs) one. (laughs) Yeah, so this study came out in the Royal Society, which is the uh, United Kingdom's National Academy of Sciences, and it was looking at extinction. And particularly, it wanted to understand the anthropogenic causes of extinction, which is important now as we're seeing an unprecedented mm-hmm. rate of human-caused extinction. And so it decided to use as its case study five recently extinct species from North America, specifically uh, the eastern half of the United States. Anybody want to list off those five, guess those five? Well, Ivory-billed woodpecker. Passenger pigeon. Yep. There's yeah, Carolina, Carolina parakeet. Jinx. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> right, there's <not> there's <laughs> uh, and then the, the last two are the hard ones: the uh, the Bachman's mm-hmm. warbler and then the heath hen. Heath which heath is hen. Is, See, I was subspecies. You jumped in there. <laughs> I know exactly subspecies <laughs> of the greater prairie chicken. And so they wanted to look at all these and use some genetic uh, data analysis to see. Was there any chance that these five species already had decreased uh, genetic diversity? And so maybe it wasn't fully our fault. <laughs> and I use the word our as the descendant of European colonialists. They did all this analysis to see if there were any genetic uh, bottlenecks before uh, European colonization, mm-hmm. which they're specific in mentioning as their time frame. And they found that, nope, sure enough, it was 100% our fault we killed all these birds all by ourselves. And uh, so kind of a little bit of a depressing reminder of the anthropogenic effect, specifically of post-colonial, the post-colonial era. And uh, I also thought it was an interesting choice for the Royal Society to choose these American species. Seemed like a little bit of uh, looking down their nose at us there. but I also thought it was interesting, too, to read this. And, and they, they sort of refer to the two time periods of North America as uh, post-colonial and the Pleistocene. And the post-colonial being the Anthropocene and the Pleistocene uh, being, you know, before colonization. So like, and which is sort of a... 1200s? 1300s? That seems pretty recent. Well, the yeah, the, it's this sort of uh, common common complaint from the Native American community of how history and science tries to forget that there were people living here before European colonialization. 
So I thought that was kind of an interesting, I was surprised actually that there wasn't somebody, uh, uh, you know, in the peer review process that didn't point out kind of how they framed it, uh, that it was this untouched wilderness, mm-hmm. you know, before uh, we came and, and killed all of the parakeets. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were in fact, like millions of people and some with like very complex civilizations as well. And not, uh, you know, driving some of the largest flocks of birds right. that we've ever seen into extinction in very short time periods. Yeah. So, uh, kind of a, yeah, kind of a, kind of a bummer of a story in a way, but, but, it, but it's good to know for yeah. sure. We finally have that. It's proof. always nice to, uh, knock down some, uh, pervasive, uh, self-aggrandizing myths. So whatever you can do to get sort of the real story. Right. Can I say something provocative? Please. Can we have a, a similar study, please, that says climate change <laughs> is <laughs> due to yeah. the impact? Unfortunately, we're in the middle of that one. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. What cl- what climate change or global warming? I mean, we've all it's so cold right now. As it's I stand here with everywhere. like uh, half an inch of of ice, like solid ice on all the surfaces outside my house right now. <laughs> yeah. Like it's just mind-boggling to think that we drove these birds to extinction simply because of the sheer volume. You know, you read these accounts of the passenger pigeons making the sky black mm-hmm. because like for a long time because of just how large the flocks were. So I wish we could, I, I hope we can take this as a cautionary tale. I hope that, you know, this really fuels more conservation, but it's also hard because there are very few species today that that are like that um yeah. and again just it's it's mind-boggling to think if if we were alive then what it would have been like um yeah, i think about that so. more often than you know when your mind wanders sometimes it's like what what would it have been like to to see that stuff to experience that um it's it's amazing even that modern takes on those times like in in media or whatever completely leave that stuff out too i mean you look at the the historical record and and the passage of the passenger pigeon was like this huge moment in the lives of colonial settlers you know they they did their year around it you know collecting the pigeons obviously clearly unsustainably but like it was a big deal and you know it's almost been erased from our modern conception of those times to our discredit well and it's also really interesting cuz and again I'm have my American Bird Conservancy hat on here, but talking yes. about lost species, you know, Martha was the last passenger pigeon. Like we know mm-hmm. uh, that individual and and when that extinction moment happened, but we don't know that for all of all of these other species yeah. that are um, around the world, right? There's like a hundred mm-hmm. around the world, and uh, there's a mix of both depressing. Uh, solemn feelings along with hope and and hoping that they're not lost yeah i think that's the part to focus on because i have to admit at portland audubon there's a poster of uh the audubon print of carolina parakeets and i'm always tempted to like put it in the closet because i feel like it just depresses me every day at work uh seeing this beautiful parakeet that doesn't exist anymore but i think like you're saying jordan it's the importance of focusing on the hope aspect of the of the birds we still have with us and and using that as a reason to work harder for their conservation so right now there is a comment period that everyone can speak up on about regarding the migratory bird treaty act the previous administration had uh, made a rule that was redefining the scope of uh the, the injury or death of migratory birds protected by the MBTA, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. The current administration is 
currently reviewing that rule. And so again, there's a comment period that folks can actually go and uh, give give their opinion on, on what happens next. Uh, the deadline is March 1st. And so it's a very short window, but again, it's a chance for folks that uh, can speak up and actually be involved in the process. Uh, it doesn't guarantee anything, but the Migratory Bird Treaty Act helps a lot of species across a very large geographic area, as, as we all know. So it's something to definitely keep your eye on. And again, if you feel inspired to take action on. Yeah, we had talked a little bit about, you know, towards the end of the last administration about, you know, whether or not they were going to make some fundamental changes to the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Thankfully, the worst case scenario did not happen. But here we have an opportunity to to jump in there and and maybe encourage them to keep things as are, and maybe even strengthen it, which would be which would obviously be super great. So please check out that link. It, it will be in the show notes. I want to provide a little bit more context. So please. the the change that the previous administration, the the M opinion, as it uh, was called, it's an opinion from the solicitor that basically, as Jordan said, narrowed the scope. It said that the only things that the Migratory Bird Treaty Act would apply to is if somebody intentionally mm-hmm. harmed a bird. Right. And so, you know, things like birds uh, drowning in mining pits or in, you know, flying into wind turbines or things like that, it, wasn't, it wouldn't be intentional. Um, and the thought was, if we apply the Migratory Bird Treaty Act that way, it will just be too much of a financial mm-hmm. burden on our country. <laughs> and so that was passed, um, and it was, it was supposed to take effect when? January 18th, something like that. And one of the first things that the current administration said was, you know, anything that happened in the last 30 days of the previous administration, we're going to look into it a little bit more. Um, And so the comment period that's open now, you know, it's do you think that this is how the Migratory Bird Treaty Act should be applied and how it had been applied before that uh, was much broader. And obviously in terms of benefits to birds had a had a much bigger impact um, in scope. And so this is really an opportunity if you have thoughts to share um, to to share your to share your thoughts. Thanks. In line with a kind of sort of a very odd piece of birding news that came across uh, my plate earlier this year, uh, a man in Nova Scotia took a photo or claimed to have seen and, and took a photo, it's not a great photo, I admittedly say, of a two-headed Ruffed grouse that was visiting his feeder, um, and it, it got in the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Corporation, the CBC News, and and it was um, I don't know you you guys had a look at this. It was it was not a great photo. Um, I would not like to be this guy's eBird reviewer, but the the you know the the written record was okay. I, I don't know what else he could have mistaken it for, to be completely honest. But with that in mind, I want to I want to ask you, um, what do you think about this this bird, and also. What is the craziest individual bird you have ever seen? The most unusual individual bird you have ever seen? So this is the bird content that I need and love right now. Let's just be honest. Um, (laughs) I don't know exactly if I would have said a two-headed grouse is that, but just, you know, talking about the ridiculous, unexpected stories that come across, um, you know, in the bird world. Um, So I'm just going to put that out there and and appreciate that this is getting highlighted. Um, And I thought about this because it goes back to to what is your definition, right? What is your Mm -hmm. definition of weird? And I came up with 
two answers depending on that definition. One is uh, I have seen uh, some chickadees with the bill deformities where they've had the super mm. long crossed bills. Because I was thinking weird in terms of, I mean, two-headed grouse like that. There's nothing there's, that weird. Well, there's nothing that weird. But then I also was like weird in terms of just like weird birds, which I know sound again, I'm okay. struggling to define birds. And I, I didn't thought, do a very good job defining it. So yeah, <laughs> thank you for calling me out on that. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Um, <laughs> but but my other gut reaction to this question was marabou stork. I'm just gonna put mm, it out there. Okay. I don't know how they got <laughs> Uh, how they came to be physically, but that that is one weird bird in my opinion as well. <laughs> I agree with that. Very weird looking yeah. bird. I have never seen anything even vaguely uh, approaching a two-headed <laughs> grouse. Um, <laughs> I was like, I've never seen anything weird. <laughs> and so I was thinking more of like, wow, that's a strange, you know, behavior type thing to see. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking back to Years ago, when I lived in Colorado, I was doing this study of cavity nesting birds in Rocky Mountain National Park and the impacts of elk on aspen. And so I was going to all the aspen groves um, on the, the east side of the park and looking for all the cavities in every aspen tree and what was using it. And in one of the cavities, there were lots of um, violet green swallows and tree swallows and various other things. But so I found this cavity and I was like, oh, there's a bird poking its head out of the cavity. And I put my binoculars up and I looked at it and I can't remember anymore if it was a tree swallow or a violet green swallow, but it was dead and it was on its back in the cavity. Like its head was sticking out. It was an adult. I'm going to call it a tree swallow. Um, It was high up. You know, this thing was, I don't know, 20 feet in the air. So it wasn't like people hadn't done it. This bird was just dead on its back with its head sticking out of the cavity. That was weird. I've never been able to figure out. What I what the story that is that yes I could tell myself appropriately would weird be. yes <laughs> yeah well mine mine is not that weird perhaps but you know in terms of the grouse I think exceptional claims require exceptional proof so this photo just seems a little too uh, Bigfoot esque <laughs> to me it is uh, although I will say that if there is a two headed grouse I'm going to tie this back into the Anthropocene and say that somehow this is our fault. Uh, and speaking of which, that's a segue to my kind of weirdest bird. I was out birding on the Columbia River uh, in, in Portland, which is maybe about 80 miles from the coast, but you know, it's a big river. So we do get some sea ducks and loons and stuff. And I'm, uh, you know, it always takes some time to sort of go through all of the different birds. And then I see this bird that for the longest time, I cannot even tell what order of birds it's in it's like i know it's in class obvious and i'm just staring at this thing and it's just one of those few moments where my mind has gone completely blank just froze um and eventually through some photos and a lot of internet sleuthing it i realized it was a lavender variety muscovy duck which i'd never seen yeah and if you look it up it's just the weirdest looking thing uh and so that's um you know, I I, uh, I appreciate how we humans have tried to spice up birding by throwing in just some of the most bizarre creations. Uh, well, I used to, I get photos sometimes of these like really bizarre pigeons with really long feathers on their feet, mm-hmm. you know, and bills that are like inverted because they've been bred to be these horrible, uh, you know, freaks. And so, yeah, so it's, um, 
Again, the Anthropocene birding keeps it spicy. Well, actually, and the fact that you said spicy, I was going to chime in and say there was that gull that was covered in orange (laughs) curry powder. Yeah, it's the turmeric. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that's that's where my mind went. And then you said spicy, and it's like, yes, exactly, even more literally, Literally spicy. And of course, it has to be a gull. You know know that only a gull is diving into a pile of turmeric. Yeah, so my my weirdest bird, um, at least the one that was the most surprising to me, was uh, uh, another sort of pigment abnormality. Those tend to be the ones that throw me for the, the loop. And uh, it was, I was birding, this was many years ago, and I was birding in Chapel Hill, and um, I saw a flock of blue jays go over, and I, for whatever reason, I put my binoculars up on one, and I, I landed on this one blue jay that was like completely white on the head, like the entire head was white. Wow. And um, you could just see the eye. He had a little crest and the eye, the black eye and the black bill. And it just, like, you don't usually see the eye of a blue jay. It's usually kind of hidden behind that black stripe that goes through the eye on the face. And um, it was a little unnerving. Um, I just will say that. But it's no two-headed grouse, that's for sure. I, I, would, um, I would love to see that thing. And uh, as uh, Birder Katie said on uh, Twitter, like, how do you enter that any bird? Is it one bird or two? <laughs> Good point. That's like the question of like if dogs wore pants, would they wear them <laughs> right, just on the exactly back legs right. or on all four <laughs> legs? <laughs> yeah. Jordan, Brody, and Jenny, thank you so much uh, for this. Uh, I know it's been a tough <laughs> couple of weeks. And um, this, I'll, I'll be honest with you, this was exactly the sort of discussion that, uh, you know, it made me, made me feel good for a little while before diving back into the uh, Twitter hellscape. So um, thank you so much for joining me. And uh, we'll see you around down the road. Thanks so much, Nate. Nice talking to you all. Thanks, y'all. Bye, everybody. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Please consider joining the ABA if you like what we do here. You'll get access to our print publications all about birds, discounts to our partners, and our thanks as we build a better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and the world. You can get more information about all our memberships, including e-memberships at aba.org slash join. I want to make a shout out to... Kathy Bangert of Easton, Maryland, Patricia Miller of Salt Spring Island, British Columbia, Nancy Apple of Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, Kelly Dare of Smyrna, Georgia, William Burnt of Evanston, Indiana, Haley and Katie Dodge of Wakefield, Massachusetts, and Nathan Johnson and the Johnson family of Lancaster, New York, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for all of that. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it a lot. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is a big fan of the Patagonia picnic table affect, which is when you can't stop talking about your charcuterie board while wearing swanky outdoor wear. Technical production is by John Lowry, and he is interested in the Patagonia picnic tableau effect, which is a very niche school of painting that focuses on hiding images of concrete picnic tables and famous works of art. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley, who point to the Patagonia cryptic table effect as a reason why they had so much trouble finding a place to eat their sandwiches in southeast Arizona. You can find us online at ABA.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Instagram at American Birding Association and Twitter at ABA. Not to put two diamond observations here in the last two weeks, but it really bothers me that all these all these low-cost online jewelry retailers don't have any obligation to let you know that the so-called precious stones you're purchasing are not, in fact, real diamonds. It's an annoying little thing that I've come to call the past zirconia nitpick label effect. Questions, comments, corrections can come to podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.